This adventure of Super Pulp Science, the podcast, is brought to you by The Last Witch, the harrowing tale of a young woman who must fight a coven of witches to save the world. Go buy it at Boom Entertainment's website or at Amazon. Attention, citizens. It's time for Super Pulp Science. This is Super Pulp Science, where we talk about how genre gets made. I'm here with two regular guests and a brand new shiny nickel on our show. No, I don't know. That's kind of... <laughs> I mean, it's funny because I'm copper. I mean, that's the only way to go with that introduction. It's funny Plus, how you know, I said my, it. My, 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 you know, my, my relative worth. Um, Connor uh, McCready, you don't need an introduction, but I'll give you one anyway. Uh, co-creator and author of Kill Shakespeare, um, but that is not why we've brought you on here. I've brought you on here to talk about your new comic book, The Last Witch. Also on the show today is Dan Vadaboncur, our uh, fearless producer, and Justin Curry, also known as Chasing Artwork the World Over, um, who is going to uh, be my uh, co-conspirator in dismantling just how you work on comics which is very different than how we work on comics, I suspect. Are you ready? To I look in? forward to being dismantled. <laughs> is that, is that Dan's the, name? Is Dan the dismantler? That's yeah, I like it. Why don't we, for the sake of the dear listener, uh, why don't you introduce a little bit about who you are and your past works, and then we'll um, get right into The Last Witch after that. Wouldn't we? Uh, so yeah, my name is uh, Connor McCreary. Uh, I am a, a Canadian comic book creator. Uh, actually, I'm a writer. I, I call myself a comic book creator uh, over steps, uh, but I do put the words on the page and then marvel as highly talented individuals draw them and make them come to life. Uh, I kind of started in the film and TV industry in Toronto. Uh, I worked as a journalist in Canada and in Africa for a little while. Uh, and then I kind of came around to the comics world with Kill Shakespeare, as you mentioned, which was a project I did with Anthony Delcall uh, with IDW, which was a lot of fun, kind of a Game of Thrones. If Game of Thrones and Shakespeare had a drunken one night stand, Kill Shakespeare were the, the illeg illegitimate babies that got left behind. Uh, and then I had a chance to work with a company like Dynamite. Uh, I did uh, Sherlock Holmes uh, versus Harry Houdini with them. Uh, I had a chance to work on the Assassin's Creed uh, comic franchise. Uh, and then I also did some work with Boom, who does The Last Witch. Uh, I worked on Adventure Time and Regular Show, and they got a chance to actually do a crossover graphic novel uh, as well. And then, yeah, you know, I got I would like, I'd like to just say tricks in there, but that's that's mostly what I'm up to. I'd like to interrupt as you pass across Adventure Time that I got some serious dad cred. My son was going through all my Adventure Time collected editions, and then I pointed down while he was laughing, laughing. He brought a story over. He's like, "Look at this," and I was like, "Oh." That's Connor's story. I, you know, he's a friend. And the look from like, uh, you're just my boring dad to like, you know, people who worked on Adventure Time, the stars <laughs> in his eyes lit up. So thank you for that moment. You know, I really appreciate it. Well, you're very, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll do you one better. I've, I've got, uh, I don't know why these didn't think since, but I've got a, I've got a, a couple of copies of the Adventure Time regular show crossover graphic novel. So that's not in your collection. I can send it and you can ramp up your dad cred even further. Oh my goodness. We're not worthy, but I appreciate it. Oh, of course. Um, how did you end up working with a company like Boom versus IDW 
What's that like to straddle those different agreements and things? Okay, so I mean, I guess IDW and Boomer, they're kind of similar companies in some ways. And then by that, I mean, they're companies, I think, that have done a decent job of having their foot in both worlds, right? Like, so both IDW and Boom have done a good job with licensed properties. You know, IDW's done stuff with like Godzilla and G.I. Joe and Boom, you know, Adventure Time, a regular show, Powerpuff Girls, like all sorts of stuff, right? There's been a really nice, both those companies really have done cool jobs with, with, with those type of properties, but both of them have been relatively robust, maybe Boom more so right now, in terms of doing stuff with creators and creator-owned books. And so with IDW, uh, you know, that was like 10 years ago, and they were it was just kind of when a lot of the publishers were like, hey, creator own, like maybe we need to figure that out. And I, we were kind of lucky, Anthony and I, we, were, we kind of were, were at IDW and in the comics world at the right time for two guys who didn't have a comics background. We, we hadn't done any comics previously, uh, unless you want to count the wrestling comics I drew in grade seven, eight, and nine, and you should not. Um, but we just kind of came. We had this weird kill Shakespeare. We had this Justice League of Shakespeare idea. And we were lucky that a bunch of publishers were trying to find their niche in this creator-owned world. And so IDW was a really wonderful experience for us and that they, they were always really positive to work for. Uh, I actually had another project that we were supposed to do with them. And then the artist, uh, the artist got poached by a, uh, a bigger name uh, writer than myself, <coughs> Donnie Cates, um, who, you know, which you, you like, when, you, when an artist comes to you, up everybody they a lot and they're like, oh yeah, Donnie Cates wants to do something with me. You're like, Godspeed, good luck. And then you're like, son of a gun, you know, and you figure it out on your own. But, and then, yeah, and with Boom was, Boom was a long time, you know, I think one of the, you know, if we're talking about process here. I think one of the lessons for, for me with Boom was just, you know, just the idea of meeting people and being nice and, and just, you know, it's the old adage, if you ask for money, you'll get for advice. And if you ask for advice, you'll get money. And, you know, I was sitting down with Shannon Waters, who's an, who is a, you know, a, an editor at Boom at the Seattle Comic Con years and years ago. And we were just, you know, getting to meet each other. She'd like kill Shakespeare. It was actually funny. Uh, another comics creator that we both know, who I won't mention, um, saw me sitting there at the you know Starbucksy type of thing at the Seattle Comics Con, and like just made a beeline in there because he recognized this editor. I just kind of sat down and then just kind of started pitching stuff, and you know you just sort of like go oh, and then you know what you just you roll with it. You make some jokes. You introduce the person. You try to make them look good because if we can't make each other look good, and after that fact, you know. It was actually the editor. I was like, oh, I mean, I'm kind of sorry our, our meeting got hijacked. I was like, no, no, it's it's all good. Like, we were just here to talk, and, you know, he's really excited to meet you. And I think that interaction actually kind of made me stick in her head a little bit. And so we just kept talking for quite a long time. And then randomly, this this opportunity to do this regular show, Adventure Time crossover book, came up. And, you know, Shannon's like, look, I know you haven't done, like, comedy books, but you're funny on the phone. Like, I love having chats with you. And I was like, actually, the, the first stuff I created in my life, the first thing I sold was a TV show that was a kid's comedy adventure TV show that got sold in Toronto and never got made. And I'm like, that's actually kind of my first love. And that's sort of how the Adventure Time regular show, that's how I went from being the history action guy of Kill Shakespeare and Assassin's Creed to the regular show thing, which then when I was pitching them The Last Witch, which is an all-ages book about a young girl fighting witches and it's, you know, it's meant to be like a fairy tale. And, I, you know, that they were like, oh, okay, well, that that kind of straddles the kill Shakespeare sword and sorcery and the Adventure Time regular show kind of jokey or kids aimed. And I think it made them feel comfortable that, okay, you know, he could do this, which, you know, I got to say, I think is one of the nicest things about being in comics is you really can 
just kind of flip all over in genre. In other industries, I think it's like, hey, you're the you're the fantasy adventure person. That's what you are, and it takes you forever right. to break out. Where in comics, it's like, well, if you have a really good random horror pitch and people like it, now you can be a horror person as well. And I think that's you know, that's really rewarding in the comics world. I'd like to point out, uh, my, I'm up to issue three of the last, which of issue four doesn't come out until next week, I believe. April 7th. And, yeah. uh, the thing I'll mention about it, it's interesting that you talk about your humor, because when I first met you, uh, I met you through the through uh, Renegade Arts Entertainment, did a little dinner, and we met there. Uh, I met you and Anthony, and I spent at least half the night just laughing at the things you were saying. Um, I don't know if I contributed meaningfully to the conversation at all. And then when I read your work, I found it very grim and very, like, quite um, almost esoteric. And The Last Witch is, I think, in my humble opinion, my humble reviewer's opinion, the most like the full you of the work I've seen you put out. Because it's got that grim side, but it also has some great humor in it. There's a there's a, a lightness when it needs to be light and then it swings pretty, pretty quickly to some horrific, that witch with the like million teeth, um, you know, all that stuff. I just, I just really impressed overall with the, the total package of this book and I can't well, recommend you. it. Enough. I, 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 I take that. I take that as high praise coming from yourself because you're a fantastic storyteller. Horror. Anguish. And terror are powerful words yeah i think i mean i think it's funny right because i mean most of the stuff i'd worked i'd worked with anthony and i think if you were to see anthony's most recent projects i think people would be like oh that's so much more like you anthony like you know and i i think it was a good thing for us to work together i think we learned a lot of sensibilities i certainly learned a lot about how to work as a creator i think anthony really instilled a sense of professionalism and um a rigor that i might not otherwise have had um, but yeah, I think when you work with somebody, yeah, I mean, there are, are there, you know, I think the parts of you that are most you are often the parts that fall on the cutting room floor because they are so you. And for the other person, it's either something they don't quite get or it doesn't, you know, j- jive with them or it's just, you know, it's just not quite them. Uh, and so I think Kill Shakespeare works tremendously well because of its a, a kind of a collection. But I think like if you look at the fifth book in that series, which is a Juliet book. That was the one where Anthony was working on other projects and he was kind of like, hey, like, you know, I'll do like a story editor pass, but I'm, you know, I'm too busy to do others to do this, but I'm really excited that you want to. And I think Juliet is funny. That's one where that's the first time I wrote something where I was like, oh, this is really my voice. And then it was regular show Adventure Time, which is another thing that I think kind of showcase a bit. I think it's very funny at times and very random at times. But it's also like, you know, I, you know, I, I talk about how I write about kick-ass girls and sensitive boys. And that's, you know, that's me, right? Like I am that, that's that's the guy I am. And so, yeah, I appreciate that. And, and I think it's also just maturing maybe as an artist and, you know, and also definitely like the young boy in the book, Brom, is very heavily modeled after my little boy, Lachlan, who's five. And there are little moments that I'm like, oh yeah, that's definitely what Lachlan would say in that situation uh, where the main character uh, Sersha is a little older than my daughter Peregrine, but there are still moments of like that's a bit like a wish fulfillment of like what kind of what kind of like superpower superhero would I hope my daughter might be uh, kind of thing. Although not all the way, because as you said, there are parts of the book that start to get dark, and it it is very much a Celtic fairy tale. And if you know your Celtic fairy tales, 
they they don't always they rarely end um with happily ever after they often end well in the sense that the hero is triumph but there's always a sacrifice uh and this book is definitely going to require some sacrifices for our characters spoiler alert um speaking of magical <laughs> powers i would like to um uh elucidate on the magical powers of vv glass oh yes um i don't know um um what pronoun they might prefer so uh vv glass these are they these are they these are they they are an incredible uh like the character work in it my question is and it's based on two things number one when justin and i did dragon nanny recently and actually i should rearrange that when Justin did Dragon Nanny and I helped a little bit, um, his art told so much of the story uh, in the uh, body language, in the movement, in the thoughtful expressions of the characters. Um, and this book, The Last Witch, has so much almost Ralph Bashy animation, a little bit. Uh, it reminds me, the, the art style reminds me a little bit of The Secret of Nim. Right. There's just so much expressiveness in the features. Uh, how much of those playful moments between characters are uh, VVs and how much are you putting that in the script? You know, it's both, right? Like I all it's interesting because V, V and I kind of we were actually we'd reached out my, myself and a friend of mine, Neil Gibson, who runs a, twi- a tea pub in the UK, who I think actually even a, a number of times. We'd actually been chasing V to work on, oddly enough, a different uh, Celtic themed story, more of our kind of a superhero y book, but a kind of a Celtic superhero book. Um, and V couldn't end up working on that. But there was this one piece from their portfolio, which was this woman standing in the middle of what looked like a tempest. And it, it perfectly just caught this like elemental feel that I wanted for The Last Witch, which is about this young woman who is taking on this coven of witches and each of the witches power is mapped to one of the elements. So very like avatar, the last airbender kind of stuff. Um, and so I'd reached out to the, and I, I'd seen, a, you know, I'd seen some of their work, but I didn't really know the depth of the work because, you know, we had, we had worked mostly for British publishers. Um, and so it was, I, I was confident that he was going to be really, really strong on the book. But like you said, like when you see the acting that V brings to the the script and to the story, it's really incredible. And so most of those moments are in there in the script, but the way they're delivered, it's, you know, again, I, I think it's kind of akin like to a great actor, you know, the writer puts in this beat, but like, you know, the, you know, the beat in a script of like, you know, look sarcastically, I mean, in a good actor's hands, that's good. In a bad actor's hands, it's nothing. And in a great actor's hands, it's sublime. And, you know, V gusts towards the sublime a lot. There are so many little moments that are so satisfactory. And I I think, like, originally, The Last Witch was meant to be a a graphic novel. And it wasn't supposed to be broken into uh, single issues. And so we kind of ran into this issue where I hadn't plotted it to have, like, act breaks the way you would normally in 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 a series. And so the first book is actually a real slow burn. And I think it's I her feel that. that carries it over. I could feel that. I was like, I think this was a, this was supposed to be all together in one that yes. I, yeah. Okay. It's good. It means my, yeah. uh, my, my 
act break sense was tingling as your spidey sense was going and there's you know like once you get out of the first one i think like the first act break for the first issue works but like it's it's a lot of setup in that first Mm. issue right like that was the general comment was like oh it's beautiful and i like the characters and i'm interested in where it's going but like it hasn't really got too far yet and then of course the second issue thankfully you know is a much more action focused and people are like oh okay good but yeah, I think I think if it wasn't for how skilled V is in those little moments between Sersha and her brother and Sersha and her father and Sersha and her grandmother, like it would have felt like a whole bunch of nothing. You know, or could have, right? So yeah, V is V is fantastically talented. We're you know, we're looking at another project that we would like to do together. And you know, every once in a while you just kinda get a chance to work with someone and you think, man, like I think we'll work on a few different things together in our career because we just get it. And I'm, I'm excited because in, the, in Last Witch, everything was really finished before I came, uh, before V was on board. Like I kind of had gone to Boom and they'd suggested some artists. And I was like, I, I've met this artist. Like we, why don't we look at them? And Boom was like, whoa, this person's amazing. But with this new project, we're kind of kicking around as we continue Last Witch. Uh, this, there's been a chance for us to really kind of jump into some story world building together and that's very satisfying for me as well because V's a very talented storyteller uh, in their own right is is boom set up editorially uh similarly to marvel and dc in that you pitch the editors and then the editors take it up the food chain or they come down the food chain which how does it how do you get a creator-owned project at boom and under the umbrella of an editor and and how does that stewardship of the story look yeah, that was like that was my experience. So when I was working on the regular show Adventure Time, uh, I guess the, the two different brands, um, my editor there was a woman by the name of Whitney, and Whitney was you know we got along well, and I was like, hey, you know, can I pitch you some stuff? And she said sure, and I I you know I sent her like a five page document with like you know paragraphs of all these different ideas I had, and normally when I pitch, I have like a lot of detail. I'm the like fifteen page. 15 page package pitch guy, you know, with the art is ready, the characters and like everything is plotted out and known. And for last witch, it was based on a short story I'd written for a Canadian um, anthology for a charity anthology. And so I had, the story was based about this girl who goes in the woods and finds a witch and comes out and is a changed person. Right. Um, But that's all it was. There was nothing beyond that. And so I kind of just said, oh yeah, and I've got this like witch story about a young girl faces down this witch and uh and literally just off the top of my head, you know, I'm kind of like, oh yeah, and, you know, it's and ultimately like, there's the eater of the world is who she's going to have to defeat. And you know, and I and I put in a twist that I just kind of again thought off the top of my head. And I'm like, wow, this sounds great. Like we would love to hear more about the twist and how this coven works and all this stuff. Like, could you send us something for Monday? And it's like Friday. And so what do you do? You say yeah, sure, of course, no problem. Let me just like uh, polish up what I've got. And then you spend the weekend being like, all right, well, let's figure something out. Uh, and so that's what I did. And so Whitney took that. And then, yeah, that went up the chain. Um, and weirdly enough, Whitney ended up uh, getting hired away by Penguin Random House. And then Shannon Waters came on board. And I assume that was partially because Shannon and I had originally created that connection. And Shannon was the one who'd sort of recommended to Whitney, hey, you know, why don't you get this guy on for this last kick at the can of a uh, regular show on uh, an adventure time but it's impossible father he moved he even spoke to me then he ran away sometimes satan with his capacity for doing evil even plays tricks with the dead i feel like it's not a successful pitch unless you go away having 
promise this big chunk that doesn't exist yet that you have to string together over the next couple of days, right? It just seems to be part of any successful project is over-promising and then having to scramble to come up with that thing. I love that. Well, yeah. I mean, I think there's this fine line, right? And I'm, I'm coming around now where it's like, if you have too much stuff, there's just a lot more for them to say no to. Mm. Oh, it's good, but, you know, I don't like this character. Because you know, they want to say no. Editors, as much as they, you know, until they, until you really establish yourself with an editor where they want to say yes because they think you're talented and you're going to get a good book out of you. Until that point, it's like they want to say no because it's just one less thing on their pile. So there is this kind of magic, like, space of, like, enough information that there's a clearly a story there but not so much information that they can say no to. And so then, yeah, they're like, and I, I remember I had that before with a project actually that I, <laughs> I've sold twice and still has not been put out. Um, but it was a similar thing where I'd, I'd said this, you know, it's this uh, Goonies with Ghosts is the, the, you know, the elevator pitch. And, you know, they're like, oh, wow, this is great. But it's a series, right? And I'm like, oh, of course it's a series. Yeah. Like, you know, it's a, it's, a, it's an all ages. Of course it's a series. Yeah. Oh, great. Well, can you get us the praises on book two and three? Uh, like, you know, can we, again, it was a Friday. And they're like, can we see it on Monday? And so, you know, sure, sure, no problem. And there I am sitting at home going, what makes this a series? What makes this a series? <laughs> but of course, that process makes you look at the story and you go, oh, this, this is why it's a series. It's because it's the Goonies with Ghosts part. It's the ghost that's unusual. That's what's got to continue through. But yeah, I think there is something, and I, as a creator, I think there is a kind of a weird fun to that of like the magic know. of the last minute panic, right? You you have that those two days to come up with this entire world. If you didn't have that last minute panic, might not have turned out nearly as well. Or you just wouldn't have done it. It would have been one of those yeah. things that you said, "Oh yeah, I got to get around to figuring out what the rest of this series would look like." But you you wouldn't have done it. You would have done all the millions of things that demand to be done right now. Um, mm-hmm. Plus, it's fun. I mean, for me, I, I in a weird way, I like that stuff. Like that stuff is is enjoyable. I I find that easier than the long. Uh, for me, the worst part of of creating writing, the actual writing process, I don't mind. You know, once you once I kind of know what I'm writing, I can sit down, do my pages pretty consistently. It generally flows relatively easily. I don't have too many days where I'm like, oh no, you know. And that like rush of like when somebody's like, here's a deadline, tell me more. I'm I'm lucky. Normally, ideas come fairly quickly. It's between those two stages. It's where I have to go from, hey, this is the idea to the writing. It's like the plotting out of a book. That's where that's that's the part for me. Some people are like, oh, that's their favorite part, right? Like they just get to sit there and think of what happens and the story starts to flow out. And then like writing it is like torture because it's like, all right, I already did all the fun stuff. But for me, it's that middle stage where I, I get paralyzed by well, but it could be this, or what if this, or well, it could be that, much. but I don't know the next nine steps, so maybe it's not that. And I, I have trouble just like yeah, foot in front of the other. It's too blue sky. There's too many possibilities, and it's too, too easy to just run in all those directions. I find that too. The, the planning out stage. I, at at a certain point, I just get anxiety over like how much potential the the project could go so i know i just have to kind of sit and start making things um to kind of like yeah constrain that crazy storm of of potential because once your mind your mind never stops right it just keeps what if if this then that and um yeah at a certain point you just need to stop and and start working on it and that's where the structure of the deadline landing on top of you yeah whether it's you know because you accidentally promised it in a pitch or because uh, an editor or because you've set a print date or whatever, that deadline then 
takes uh, away the guesswork. It's not, I could think of anything. It's what could I think of in the hours I have left? Yes. Yes, no, for sure. For sure. And I think, I think, you know, like you were saying, Justin, I think there is that, you know, it's like, if you say to somebody, write me a story, well, you'll get something. But if you say, write me a story set in a spaceship, uh, you know, with a, you know, with a, you know, the classic uh, HAL computer, you'll get, you'll get something very specific. You'll get something faster and more, you know, like the more, the more limitations you give to the storytelling in some ways, the tighter story, well, met, you know, really almost always the tighter storytelling you, you ultimately get. And so, yeah, it's, it's definitely, you know, but to kind of circle back to where we were originally going from, yeah, boom is definitely one of those, you know, you go to an editor and then they, you know, they walk it up and in some ways it's, it's kind of weird. Like IDW, Earlier in my career, I was kind of able just to pitch them directly. Um, now it's a little different. I haven't done something with them for a while, so I can still pitch them, but it's going through the this kind of process. But it was weird because I could kind of pitch directly and have a an actual just conversation right then and there to answer things. And then, you know, it is sometimes frustrating. You know, you give it to the editor, and then it's up to the editor to go, you know, to go battle, to go fight. And of right. course, they've got the tools because they know the arena that they're fighting in better, and they know, you know, who and how, you know, what the you know what the battle is going to be like what what they actually have to win on but it sometimes feels very helpless to sit there and be like oh like i can't be there to answer a question or to come up with an idea on the moment right which is in my limited career of pitching in film and television you know and Gregory, you know you've got a lot you've got experience in this is that there is a, sort of a fun of being in that room and then a question is asked and you just come up with an answer and sometimes the answer is really good and you're pretty happy but at least you're there to like that's right well and they sometimes see the moment of inspiration and that's infectious right there's an old uh, there's an old joke i think it's a, it's a john cleese joke about uh, uh how many producers how many hollywood producers does it take to turn in a light bulb to, to put in a light bulb and the answer is of course does it have to be a light bulb yeah yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, and so when that question, does it have to be a whatever? And if you know your material really well and you understand like the scaffolding, like if you pull this thread, what are all the pieces that fall away? And you're able to plug something new in right away. That sometimes is uh, takes you a step closer real quick. Um, not always true. Not always true because there's so many different uh, pots. One of the things I think that the dear listener might not be aware of is that one of the reasons why an editor has to go fight for a book is that there are limited resources at a publisher. And so it's a certain number of pages. It's a certain number of publication schedules. Will this generate revenue for the publisher over this other project, which maybe has another creator attached that is a a, a rising star or whatever. There's all these behind the scenes mechanics that the editors are privy to that the creators are not in those kinds of environments. And it can be disheartening when you find out like, oh, it turns out the reason we can't do your book is that somebody more famous is doing a book and they've taken your slot, right? Yeah. And that's yeah, just- no, I've, I mean, I've, I've had that happen to me. You know, I remember with, uh, actually with that uh, Good News with Ghost project, the first time we sold it, you know, we got to the stage of like, hey, who are we gonna pick out for the colorist? And, you know, let's do some, let's, let's rework the cover design and, you know, the, the script, you know, Hey, let's continue on with the script sort of thing. And yeah, you know, unfortunately they came back and it was, it was just that. It was like, look, you know, we, we ended up taking on a high profile property and that means we have to cut three other properties to afford the high profile property. And 
you're one of the three last ones into the hopper, so you're one of the th three first out. Now, whether that was the case because we were one of the three last in, or whether it was because, hey, you're the kill Shakespeare guy, you know, and that had X amount of currency, but you know, we have A and B and C's amount of currency on top. You know, you never really know what right. the you know the sense is, and I feel like you know, no publisher really, even if it's the truth, there's not a lot of people in our industry where if you said, look, hey, Connor, ultimately, you know, we had bigger names we thought are going to sell better like and i would understand like honestly you know i'm I, you know, i'm a biz i'm a biz knob i you know that was my undergraduate degree was business and i i would sit there and be like yeah no it makes total sense right <laughs> like you know I, i'm not offended like cool just just give me the just give me a chance to to knock on your door again but that's a hard thing you know that's, it's hard to go to somebody and say look you know no matter what we think about your story we just think somebody else's will sell better but that's i mean at the end of the day that is like you said that is the primary consideration for the publishers is they have to sit there and think can we sell this thing i am no longer your father my blood is no longer your blood the spirits of evil have rendered that tie between us forever and an accursed poison flows in your veins dig into the nuts and bolts of how boom structures a deal is it a um do they pay a page rate do you have to pay your artist a page rate and then you advocate for the deal was this a creator owned where you're the creator and you subcontracted the TV. how did that all what what does that look like to a person who reads so the last last which last which is a little different than well i mean no so last which basically was because i had brought them the concept and pitched it to them and then i kind of suggested the artist so the way this one worked out is i got my you know i got my advance and i got my share you know i have my contract that says here's your share of the of the profits. And then there's a, you know, there's another portion of the deal that talks about media rights and how those are split. And, you know, boom has a pretty well-established presence in film and television. So while the rights and stuff are mine, the control of the property is functionally theirs, you know, because that's, they feel like they have us, you know, they have it especially with that. And they've got, you know, they've got their, you know, if you fall, which I can and can't talk about, but if you follow the news and search kind of boom and what, you know, kind of what streamer they do business with, you know, it's, it's one everybody knows kind of thing. So that's kind of how they work. And then they separately went to V and said, hey, this is our budget for Paige. Now, I'm not sure how it'll work if V and I, you know, we intend to kind of pitch this new idea around and Boom would certainly be one of the places we would pitch it to. Um, I don't know how that would work in that stage if, if V and I are representing ourselves as co-creators. I mean, obviously that would cut V into the back end. I right. still assume that might change the advance. Like boom might then just do one big advance and then it's up to me and I, we want to split that. Um, but in this case, I got an advance, she got a page rate and then V and I have our own separate agreement around, well, what do we want to do with the rest of this stuff? Um, because even though, even though V was brought in as a, I guess, technically a freelancer, like I'm the one who brought them in and I was, you know, and I had considered them as somebody as like a partner on the project. So I, I looked at that and said, okay, I don't, this isn't like, say when I worked on Adventure Time, they brought in this really talented Italian artist, uh, Mattia DeMaio, but like Mattia and I never spoke. We didn't know each other. Like, you know, I was writing words, he was drawing pictures and that was that, you know, and there was no kind of, we're a team where, we're not the same way as it, as it is with say me and Andy Boulanger on Kill Shakespeare or how V and I are working on uh, Last Witch. It must have been such a challenge to write comedy, setting up physical beat and not being able to talk directly to the artist on that regular show book. 
Yeah, it was weird. It was weird because there was, you know, and again, also because there's a bit of a difference in, in you know, there's something lost in translation, obviously, because he's, you know, it, it, Italian is his first language. And, you know, some of the jokes were kind of weird pop culture jokes. So I wasn't necessarily sure. But uh, speaking of talented, actually, it's, speaking of talented uh, cartoonists, uh, Matteo De Maio is, uh, is very, very talented. He, and when you talk about like really good subtle acting, you know, when I send you this book, Greg, you'll be able to see, but he really lands a lot of things that you wouldn't expect. And in fact, the biggest problem with that book was we, we tried to do something weird with format and we could, we weren't quite allowed to do what we wanted to do. And so we kind of did something halfway through. And that's the one problem with that book is there's a, there's a, there's an experimental format attempt that doesn't work really at all, <laughs> which was funny about that is then boom came up to me. I was like, Oh, we know you wanted to do this weird thing with the book, with the first issue where it'd be like the front page and a, you know, the first issue you can read it back to front. You know, it's like, yeah, and they're like, well, we couldn't do that. But hey, why don't you do that exact same idea for this annual special? And I was like, yeah, but I don't have a story that loops that way for it. But that was another one of those moments where it's like, okay, now I know what the format is. It's got to read the same from the front to the back of the back to the front. Let me figure out what that's what that structure is, um, which mostly worked. We ended up having it. So you kept turning the comic. So to read the next each page would have four panels, but each panel would be tilted because each panel was part of a different story. So you would read through the whole comic looking just in one panel all the way through mm-hmm. and then go back to the front and turn the comic around. And then you would read it Ooh, this way. Story. Like that. So that was fun. I didn't see that one. What book is that from? That's the, that is my uh, solo shot at a regular show. It was a regular show annual about how they, they adopt uh, a hellhound from the pound. Sweet. Um, yes. So, Which feels like a very Mordecai and Rigby sort of thing to do. <laughs> uh, Last Witch, was it a project where you guys finished all the artwork up front and then have been releasing it an issue at a time? Or is, uh, as we speak, is VV scrambling to get something ready for the printer? I, I mean, it was. Um, we, we were ahead for, we were a few issues ahead, but there is a question there I'm yeah, there has been a question about how to release the second half. Because like I said, originally, I mean, originally the last which was going to be one graphic novel. And then um I turned in the script, which was a little longer than we had discussed, but I we kind of had this conversation of like, oh, if I go over, maybe we rework the advance, because I understand you have this art thing, and if we all agree the book is should be that long, then I'm willing to take a bit of a haircut up front because I think it'll be a better book and we'll make more money in the long run. But unfortunately, because Wit had left to go to another publisher, somehow that conversation we had got lost in translation. And not only was there no understanding that I might go over page count, the page count was actually considerably different. The understanding of what I had had from the original editor and what the new editor coming on had understood. And so now we were in this, we were in this really weird space where we had this book that was like, you know, like 80 pages too long. And it's really meticulously plotted out. So, you know, Shannon was like, I don't really know what to do with this because we can't cut 80 pages from this book. Like, it doesn't make sense. So then the decision was, well, we'll do it as two books. So then we did it as two books. And then yet again, I wrote a little over on both installments, but they were very generous with me. Um, So then it was going to be two books. Oh, great. We're going to release it as two trades. And then, of course, COVID comes around and, you know, Boom is like, well, what if we release this first trade by, you know, Kill Shakespeare's been a while and it's not based on any IP. And what if we release it and it just... You know, nobody knew with comics, right? We're, we're, we're whole months of comics just going to get released and not sold because nobody was going to stores. And the, and the series win, the Tinian series had just come out. And 
that was a similar thing where Boom had had a graphic novel and figured need to do something with it. And so they did these oversized issues and it did really well. And we were in a, in a shocking turn of events when you give readers like an extra 50% in terms of reading material and you only charge them an extra 25% on top of the normal price of a book, they see that as a good value proposition and are like, ooh, I will take more comics for you know comparatively less money. And so that's what we did with Last, with Last Witch is we did that. They're all oversized. And so now the question is for book two is will it be, will it be released as a trade on the heels of the first trade? Will it be released as single issues on the heel of the first trade? Or will we, and we have still have time to do this, will we continue to release it single issues on a regular, on a regular uh, uh, schedule? And so that's, that's, still, that's still up in the air, dear listener. We don't know which way we're going to go yet. Mm. How much of that do you have a say over? Like you're... Realistically? <laughs> Realistically yeah. or what they tell me? <laughs> um, both in your experience. I mean, I can speak for Boom in the sense that I think Boom legitimately wants to try to have, you know, they want to try to serve the creator, right? They don't want to do something that's going to piss off the creator. But, I mean, at the end of the day, like, I mean, for, for context for that is I got a call from a literary agent uh, my literary agent and, and she was like, Oh, so, you know, are you excited about the single issue thing? And I was like, what single issue thing? And she's like, Oh yeah, they've decided to do it as single issues. And I was like, Oh no, I did not know about this. So in that case, I mean, that decision had been made. And again, it was just another communication breakdown. They thought they had reached out to me about it. Um, luckily I'm pretty easygoing. I mean, and my own, my concern at the moment was like, Whoa, Whoa, I did not write this in 22 page act breaks. Like this is going to be a major piece of rewriting for me to figure this out. And they came back and was like, oh, no, no worries about that. We're going to do oversight. So we'll just work with you. and We can figure out where normal breaks are now. And we can do a little tweaking to the script. But no more pages, McCreary. You've had all the pages you're going to get. No more pages. Um, and that's, you know, and we'll figure it out that way. And so, yeah, I, 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 the decision was made without me about single issues. But I do feel like there, you know, like I had been in discussion about the single trade to the double trade. Like it would have been really easy. And at one point I was nervous, especially because this was on the scale of this Goonies was Go thing that had been sold twice and then fallen apart twice. I was sitting there going, oh man, because of this, are they going to come back and say, look, we really do like the idea, but this is yeah. a lot more story than we were planning on buying. So, you know what, we'll set you free and you can sell it to someone else, blah, blah, blah. And, you know, they never did that. They, they wanted to make it work uh, and they worked really hard to make it work. And honestly, it would have been, you know, they, they put their money where their mouth is to give them completely complete credit. They could have easily have said, look, well, it's longer, so we're going to just stick to the original deal. But they were like, no, no, we'll, we'll find the money to pay you the equivalent rate for this longer book, which I really appreciated because it would have been very easy for them to say, Hey, miscommunication thing, but you want the book published or not, kind of thing. And that's that's not how they work. You know, they're they're good peeps over at Boom. She's breathing. We're in the presence of some unnatural mystery. Okay, so we talked about the nuts and bolts. Let's talk about how it all fit together. Why don't you tell the listener and actually Justin and, and Dan, because they're not familiar with the book, tell them the story of the last witch and what uh, what they should expect and why they should go out and order copies. Because my I, I need to feed my kids. Um, yeah, no, so the last name. witch. <laughs> uh, it's actually it's funny, uh, Greg, because you touched on it. I think you mentioned the secret of Nim. So the last witch is meant to be like a secret of Nim or 
a dark crystal kind of tone for a fairy tale. It's about a young girl uh, who has this strange marking on her body that's always been this this source of uh, derision and mocking in her little Irish town, a little Irish village. Uh, and she decides one day on her 12th birthday that she's going to, in this competition with this other, you know, this kind of obnoxious young boy in her village, they're going to dive into the forest. On the one day of the year, you are not supposed to go into the forest. And they're going to try to find the ruins of this witch's tower that are said to be there. And that one of them is going to find this tower. And the idea is we're going to race. One of us is going to find the tower. We've never, neither one of us have ever gone past the hedge in the woods. But we're going to do it this time. One of us is going to come back with a piece of the tower. And we're going to be, you know, the other one is basically going to be, uh, you know, in our debt for the rest of the, the rest of our known lives. And, and Saoirse wants to do this. She wants to be special, right? She is, she is a, uh, the, you know, in a poor village, she is a member of the poorest family. She has, her mother has passed away from the famine. Her grandmother is this very strange woman who lives alone in the woods and is kind of looked at, you know, with a side eye by the rest of the village. She, you know, she's about as low as you could be on this totem pole. And so for her, this is her, she wants to be special. And the story is about part of the, what the last witch is about is about a young woman taking on these evil witches who want to finish the job that the famine started, which is to, to end all of Ireland, to take out everybody. The reason they want to do that is because that is going to give them the power to open the door between our world and the fairy world where the king of the fairies, the eater of the world is way lying in wait. Um, and if they open that door and bring him into our world, He's going to take it over and, and the witch who is responsible for that will sit at his right hand side. So that's kind of the stakes, right? It's, it's, it's a save the world kind of adventure. But really a lot of what it's about is it's about, it's about wanting to be special and about then finding out that you are special because this strange mark I mentioned, this is the witch mark. This is this thing that both marks her as someone who actually has an affinity to magic, but will also protect her for magic and allow her to absorb magic. Um, and so it's like you find out you're special, but there's kind of a weird thing when you want so badly to be special and then you find out that you are, there's a, there's a moral challenge that comes with that of how special do you allow yourself to feel? And if all of a sudden you're special, does that mean the people around you aren't? And if they aren't, well, then doesn't that justify you being allowed to do what you want, no matter what it is? And, you know, it really is a story about, you know, power corrupting. And it's very clear from the beginning, you know, not this is not a spoiler. As, as we get very early in the book, we find out that one of the big battles Saoirse is going to have, it's not just going to be about her fighting the witches. It's going to be about her harnessing this power that isn't really meant for humans and trying to keep it from turning her into a member of this covenant. You know, someone who would rather open that door than keep it closed. Uh, and yeah, and so yeah, it's it's a young girl. It's If you've got, you know, like I said, I read it to my, my children. They're five and seven. They're probably a, a little in the young age. But I wrote it because I wanted it to be a book that, you know, teens would pick up and preteens would pick up. And, you know, me in my 20s, I loved reading stuff like fables, you know. But I also wanted it to be a story that as a dad or a mom or an aunt or an uncle, you would read to your, you know, your kids, your niece. And that it would just be that little too scary. But that's kind of what keeps, I think, younger readers hooked. But ideally, you know, I really hope it's a book that you pick up and you're like, oh, man, I, hey, yeah, let's read some more of The Last Witch tonight because you want to know what's coming next, you know. And the ultimate honor for me with this book would be something like 20 years down the road 
and there would be somebody who's like, oh, I, I found a copy of this weird book that like not a lot of people know about, but I got read, it got read to me when I was a little kid and it really stuck with me. It freaked me out in all the right ways and it, I, I read it to pieces and now I found a copy on, you know, whatever future eBay is going to be and, you know, I'm going to read it to my kids. Like that, that is the big, that would be my, you know, my magic goal. So I got 20 years to find out if this is a success or not. It's so true. Yeah. We live that, we live in that world, Justin and I, when we're making our books for kids is you never know where they'll take you or what they'll, where they'll go. I'll let you know that my 12 year old, he just turned 12 today, actually, but my 12, he was 11 at the time reading the last witch, uh, by his reading light in his bedroom at night, uh, in the morning, I was like, so how was it? He's like, it, he's like, I thought it would be fine, but it was a mistake to read it before bed. And in a good way, he was like, it was that there's a few witch moments, which really landed, even though the style is very light and very uh, animation sort of inspired. Um, there's a few, the pacing and a little bit of the, the page turn reveals of the like scary bits. And he grew up in a comic book house, so he knows not to flip ahead in a book to ruin it for himself, right? So uh, I got a, his unabashed, like, you know, it was really fun. It moved at a great pace. And then I kind of halfway through issue two, I was like, maybe I shouldn't have read this right before bed. <laughs> so that, 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 um, that is perfect. I mean, that's I, I kind of want that. I want a kid to be like, I know it's okay. But yeah, I mean, and that, and, and you speak a little bit about the art style. And I think that's one of the things where V, because she's, because her style is so clean and it's so pretty that I think we've been able to push some of the creepy moments farther than we would have because like the, the book looks so fun and safe. And then, yeah, all of a sudden you find yourself reading and you're like, oh, that's, that's what the witch is eating. Uh, oh, you know, and I, I, I've had a friend of mine who's, you know, I, I passed it to some friends of mine, and she was like, yeah, I read it, and, you know, of course, she's not a comics from a comics house originally, and she read through, and she, halfway through this scene, she suddenly realizes what's going on, and is like, can I change it now? Can I get out? But, of course, her kid is just like, what? You know, because kids love that stuff. I mean, kids kids like it to be, you know, they like it to be a little scary as long as it feels safe overall, and I think these art makes you realize it's going to be safe. Like, especially the way she draws Sersha, you just, you just have this feeling that it's going to be okay. Justin has that power to, to present, you know, horror figures or um, just really outlandish kind of arresting images, the kind of image that when I render it, people be like, we can't put that in a school. But if he renders the same creature in his style, you'll find it so approachable. So like, you know, and if you have that right um, visual language, it really can, let you go places as a storyteller that you can't go uh, with a different tool set. I, I definitely think you've got a winner here. Um, well, that's because, I mean, you're a terrifying man, to be fair. That's, that's true. It's death. I've just seen death. I mean, I, I've actually seen a little bit of the, the Dragon Nanny and I was like, oh, this is like, it, it feels from what I've seen, I'm like, oh, it feels, it does feel very you uh you know greg but like the but justin yeah like your style is so um you know it's so inviting right like it, you, one of the things i really love that that you do and you know i know this is both of you working together but i i really love how complete the world of the pages feels like one of my pet peeves is backgrounds of comics where it's just like been just shaded a color 
Like there's no mm. actual background. And I get why that happens sometimes, right? Like sometimes it's like, look, I, we're, it's a close up of a person. I'm not, it, it does, we get no payoff from the artist spending their time doing details in the background. But when you're not doing that and you get to see the environment, I, I always gravitate to books where the environment feels like you could just walk into it. And like that stuff that you guys are doing, like that, that has that thing. It's like, oh, I'm just going to walk into it. Like that's where that uh, I, I, this is a lived in world. And I think it's, you know, it's, it's pretty exceptional. I think well, that, uh, go ahead. Right, right through from, from Cassie and Fong, Rustin Water, right into Dragon Nanny. Every time I turn one of Justin's pages, the world seems bigger and I don't know how the world can get any bigger. And then it gets, it just, you're right. I am in awe of that. And even though I illustrate pretty heavily, even, even do backgrounds now, yeah. uh, I can't, and come close. So Justin, why don't you speak about that? How do you get it so big? Um, I think that comes from my obsession with um, concept art books and the art of books. Uh, when I go to like a bookstore, I beeline for that section where it's like the art of Frozen 2 and the art of uh, Steven Universe. Like I have so many art of books that I've never seen the show or the movie to, but my favorite thing to look at, at is the concept art and like the, you know, the the full background shots that in the show, you only rarely ever saw like a, you know, like a little frame, but in the book, they show you the, the huge scene that it actually came from. Um, so especially with Dragon Nanny, I think like for um, a couple of weeks before I, I got into the characters, um, I was just doing like establishing shots of the world. I really fleshed out the, the environment. And then I had so much fun making these big establishing shots that I never dialed that down. I just kept it going the entire time. Um, and so I wanted to ask, like with, with your books, do you guys, do you plan to have a, a section of kind of the building of the world and all that concept art? Um, is there, or did you run out of pages to use all those pages up? Or are you yeah. going to have room? Yeah. Yeah, I don't know. That's a good question, actually, because everything's coming up. Probably I used a lot of books. <laughs> um, um, that is a good question because, you know, now that we've done it as single issues, there is kind of an open question of like, well, what does the trade look like now? Like, what can we do? You know, I mean, knock on wood, if the single issues are selling well enough, then there's a little extra money to maybe throw in an extra 10, 15 pages and to do that. Because he's done some really nice character design work. I mean, I definitely want to have a page of just pronunciation for the the Celtic names. I mean, I, I feel bad for the reviewers who've been going through, you know, and I've been watching like, you know, I'm, I'll, I'll admit it. I'm that guy who watches my reviews or listens to my reviews or reads them um, sometimes with gritted teeth. But, um, you know, but I, I feel bad because you have these people and they're like, I can't remember which one it is. There's one where the guys, one of the guys is reading the series and really enjoys it, but he's got no background in Celtic mythology. And so all the names, he's just like, not that you should be able to pronounce like, you know, the the witch that the the bat the head evil witch is pronounced Kalok, but you would never get that from how it's spelled. And so he's like going through and saying, "Oh, so then Circe," and then you can hear the guy in the back of the <laughs> podcast going, "Sersha." You know, so obviously this guy has an uh, an Irish background and is getting this stuff right. But so I, I want at the front, I want there to be a chrono guy because, like, you know, I I don't really want someone to go through and not know how to say the protagonist's name, but. At the same token, and I and I kind of wrestled with that. I was like, "Do I want to change that name?" Well, like, no, I love Search, and I know I love what it means in Gaelic. That's kind of you know, it's a warrior's name. Um, and then I kind of felt, well, Search Ronan is sort of opened that name up a little bit to the average person. 
Um, but yeah, I, I would love, that would be an interesting question, Justin. I would love to get some of the, the, the design work that V did into the book because I love that stuff, you know, and, and I'm always privately disappointed when I do work with a new artist and they don't do a lot of those con concept art stuff. They just kind of bring you a finished design. Right. I was like, oh, well, but I wanted to see all about how you got there. I'm not going to even necessarily argue or say do that instead. I just, I just kind of like seeing all those little drawings. Like, I think that's from speaking in defense of the artists. Um, a lot of times when when artists show half finished work or rough work, if it's an inexperienced um, person they're working with, they they don't understand the that there's still a ways to go on things. So they. Yeah, I think early in a lot of illustrators' career, they they run into that roadblock of they showed something half finished and they got like chastised or in trouble for it. Like this is not good enough, and they're like, no, 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 it wasn't finished. And yeah. so they, yeah, they learn very early on that you have to finish it completely before you show the client. Um, but that's something I wish I saw more as a, a kid. And you were talking about how like you you'd love to see this book be something that a kid is reads early on, and then you know. Um, laments like later on in or yeah loves later on in life um early on i wish i'd had been introduced to more books where they had the making of or like the rough version included because i don't think there was any books in my childhood that had any kind of you know concept art or process breakdown or any unfinished work it was only the finished product that i ever saw until i was i think like you know well into my teenage years that I realized, oh yeah, there's rough versions of, of comics before it just gets it just to doesn't be come this. Out like this. Yeah. It looks overwhelming. Yeah. You sit there and you're like, well, I could never do that. And it's like, well, yeah, yeah. neither could the yeah. artist. They didn't do that either. They, they went through this iterative process. No, I'm, I'm totally mm -hmm. with you. I think, you know, I think anything you can do, like even this podcast, this idea of this podcast of demystifying the creative process. I think that's, you know, that's, that's helpful. That's cool. It, it, it inspires people to, do to create for themselves and at the end of the day like that's what's exciting right it's exciting when people are creating that's exciting and it doesn't matter what they're creating just the fact that they're creating it's, it's exciting it's good for them it's good for their family it's good for the people like it's you know not to get too like you know i'd like to buy the world of coke but like honestly if, if we were all creating as much as we wanted to create the world would be a happier better place because we're happy when we create you know and that doesn't matter whether it's a comic or or cookies making things makes us happy Connor, I could not imagine a better point to end on, on this episode of Super Pulp Science. Creating things does make us all happy. Thank you so much for sharing your process about The Last Witch. And I, uh, why don't you tell everyone how you prefer they find it and where they should go to get it? Sure. I mean, if you have a local comic book shop that you like to, pay, uh, to patronize, patronize, um, they... If they don't have it in already, they can order it. They, they have done a second printing of the first issue, so you can start from the beginning. So, you know, whoop, whoop. But yeah, local comic shop. Um, if you use Comixology uh, or a Kindle, there are electronic versions you can easily buy by going to Comixology or going to Amazon. And if you are sort of a, I'm not a single issues person, I am a completist, uh, you can put a pre-order right now for the first volume of The Last Witch. Uh, I just saw issue five, fully colored, just came in my mailbox this morning. Uh, it is. It ends. Uh, v and Natalia Nastrenko, the other uh, colorist, have outdone themselves again. The, the final image of the first book is an all-timer, and I'm very excited. And uh, you will be too. So yeah, either single issues from a local comic shop, or you can pre-order the first book 
uh, from Amazon or from a local comic shop, even better. Marvelous. I am Gregory Kamichak, and this has been Super Pulp Science. I'm reminding you that you should join the fight and make comics. <laughs>